0: You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Feed my sheep, Christ commanded Peter, and Peter passed on that command to others, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, so that when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The pastor's duty is serious business, and its stakes amount to the heights of Christian eschatology. But how are pastors to shepherd Christ's flock today in a culture where the church is increasingly marginalized, and even many professing Christians decide to give the church a miss? When the debates of our age are dominated by experts political, scientific, and academic, what can a humble local pastor say that matters? According to Kevin Van Hooser and Owen Strawn, the answer lies in a lost vision of pastoral ministry the canonical and historical pattern of pastor as public theologian. In their book, they labor to reorient our understanding of the pastorate, giving it a sound theological grounding for speaking and acting for Christ in his church before the watching world. I'm David Grubbs, your host for this episode of Christian Humanist Profiles, and with us today is Dr. Kevin Van Hooser, Research Professor of Systematic Theology at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School and co-author of The Pastor as Public Theologian, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, published by Baker Academic. Welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles, Dr. Van Hooser.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Usually when we're talking uh, with an author of a co-authored book, we ask first uh, to say a little bit about the other author who isn't present. What would you like to say about uh, Owen Strawn in this project?
1: Uh, the book is his fault. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he was a former Ph.D. student at Trinity, took one of my courses, overheard a comment I made about the pastor being the church's default intellectual. I think that was the phrase I used and he said we you know you should write a book about that we should write a book about that and then he volunteered his services told me how easy it would be and effectively lured me into the project uh once i got into it it proved to be more difficult but but also more worthwhile Mm. so i'm very grateful to him we divided things pretty much 50 50. he did two chapters i did two chapters we each read each other's work offered comments to make sure it had a coherence, and uh, yes, it was his energy that uh, got me going.
0: Excellent. Well, it seems that for the past few years there's been, at least in some circles, a surge of interest in this pastor as intellectual, pastor as theologian, pastor as scholar idea. A number of books and articles have come out on the topic, so you and Strun's book, uh, your your book appears to be writing that crest, as it were, what in the church or the culture is motivating this conversation about pastors as theologians and where does your book fit in that conversation
1: right i suppose we are riding a bit of a wave i have to say it's a small wave
0: (laughs) wave nonetheless
1: (laughs) you're on it uh i think from our perspective it started from a perception that we're that we've lost our way to some extent um there's a you mentioned the humble pastor i think we've been operating with a dichotomy about what the pastors do in the church and what theologians do in the academy. Mm. Uh, We've boxed theology into a theoretical science, yet one more university specialization. And then we've similarly boxed the pastorate into a practical sphere, a professionalization. And my hunch is that we've actually let a secular culture influence our thinking Mm -hmm. about the church in the place where one might least have expected it, that is, our ideas about what's going on in the pulpit. So I I think to some extent the uh, very idea of what a pastor is and what a pastor does has been somewhat secularized in so far as we, well, to the extent that we think of pastors as uh, a person who manages other people or programs, a managerial idea. And I think this is this is par for the course. the Church has always been under a certain cultural pressure to be like other institutions, just as Israel was under pressure, at least self-imposed pressure to be like other nations. And I think this is basically a result of a confusion about what Christianity is and what the church is and is here for. Mm. so our ba- our book makes a case. For pastors being uh, local theologians and I can say more about that if I need be but instead of being business managers or entertainers or therapists we're saying pastors are first and foremost local theologians theologians that serve a particular community in space and time
0: well I like pastors and I like theologians and scholars so combining those ideas seems a very natural move to me Uh, but there have been some cautions raised about that kind of combination. Um, I'll just note an article by Mark Jones on uh, the Reformation 21 website. Uh, Andrew Wilson did a recent article in Christianity Today on that topic. Uh, We don't necessarily have to delve into the details of those pieces, but I was thinking about those as I was reading your introduction And that many of the objections that I'd seen in those other articles were actually addressed in the way that you define your terms of pastors as public theologians, organic intellectuals, and generalists. So could you unpack those ideas? Sure.
1: And, yes, I think you're right. I anticipated certain objections. I just didn't think they'd come so quickly. (laughs) book had only been published a few weeks, and then there were people, as you suggest, writing articles about saying how impossible this was. Uh, But the first thing I want to say is the pushback that you mentioned in both those pieces was pushback against the idea of the pastor-scholar. So as in all important discussions, we have to define our terms, and we did not call pastors to be scholars. We used the term public theologians, and that doesn't mean academic theologians. Mm. We use the word public theologian and also organic intellectual. So uh, I, I do think I need to spell out these terms, but very simply, what I mean by public the- theologian is a theologian who works primarily with people as the raw material, as it were, of theology and not just ideas. Um, the pastors are public theologians because they're working with people among the people for the people of god and for the sake of people everywhere because the church should be for the sake of the world so the people of god as i say is the raw material or the cooked material they're the material in any case the the place where theology is happening so that's what i mean by public theology sometimes people mean a theologian who engages in issues in the public square. And it may involve that, but first and foremost, public theologian is really, for me, a synonym of local theologian, a theologian who works with and in and among and for a local community. And that's tied in with the term organic intellectual. Mm. I didn't invent that term. I've actually borrowed it from an Italian thinker. But in any case, an organic intellectual, unlike the academic intellectual, is located in a community. And an organic intellectual is someone who is able to articulate the concerns, the convictions, and the commitments of a particular community. I think that's a fine idea or you know, a description of the task of a local theologian. And the, the other thing I wanted to say about the idea of the pastor-scholar, I think much of the pushback we're hearing, at least that I'm hearing, is that there, isn't, there simply isn't enough time to become a specialist. You know, pastors are busy as it is. Everybody mm. knows pastors are busy. Are we actually saying, we, we know you're busy, but we also want you to read Karl Barth's Collected Works in one year? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that's not what we mean. Uh, Academic theologians are a kind of specialist, and most academic specialists are people who know a lot about a little, but also most specialists are tongue-tied when it comes to the big questions. You know, get them on their turf, uh, electromagnetism, and they can talk a lot, but if they're off their turf, they become as weak as any other man, but pastors <laughs> have to talk about the big questions. Uh, life and death, meaning and meaninglessness, the physical and the spiritual, suffering and evil. Pastors have to address the big questions on a regular basis, and they have to communicate to non-academics. So they're generalists. They are generalists. But they also know something very specific and particular and definite. Mm. They, They know about what God is doing in Christ. To renew creation and that's a big idea that's important and it has connections to everything else but it doesn't make them necessarily specialists it makes them theologians so what i want to say is that the pastor theologian is a special kind of generalist uh, who well if we use the term specialize what they specialize is in something general that is what god is doing in christ to renew creation so that's that would be my my response to these criticisms it's a very particular kind of specialization it's mm. a special specialization in what god is doing in christ to remake all people into his image mm.
0: i want to i want to be fair to uh to jones and wilson and and other articles of that sort um it seems as if their objections mainly come out of uh, what they what they perceive as an attempt by some to lay on the ordinary pastor a burden that uh, they shouldn't have to bear uh, in addition yeah. to their other duties. Exactly. But but would I be, would it be fair to say that what you and Strawn are suggesting is not another burden for pastors to take up, but rather a way to rethink the burdens they already carry?
1: I actually think it makes their burdens lighter because it Mm. should give them confidence in what they have to offer and it also gives them the big picture that is a a way of offering what they have to offer they just have to keep that in mind they have something extremely important to offer people and i would say that um it's not adding an extra burden to them it's recovering the birthright of
0: the pastor nice well one of the things that we should, I guess, note at the outset. We've already mentioned that you have a co-author, Owen Strawn, but there's also another distinctive feature of this book. It's not only a book from two theologians aimed at pastors, but it's also an anthology of essays by pastors who are, uh, I I believe, pursuing in practice what you and Strawn theorize or theologize is maybe the better way to say it. So, What role do these essays play in your project? And why would you consider it important to actually integrate them into your book instead of doing some kind of separate essay collection or something of the sort? Yeah,
1: that's a good strategic question. Uh, Well, both Owen and I are located in the academy. I've been in it for a few years. He's starting out. But given our location... We have little credibility. <laughs> that is, <laughs> but we're not practicing pastors, so what gives us the right mm. to pontificate or evangelize uh, about what pastors are supposed to be doing? Uh, why should pastors trust what we say if we aren't, you know, in the trenches alongside them? Mm. So we felt it important to have these essays from 12 respected practicing pastors. Uh, provide corroborative evidence that we aren't simply wide-eyed idealists or wild-eyed utopians who have no understanding of the actual situation on the congregational ground that pastors face. Mm. Uh, So in a sense, these essays give us, we hope, street cred or pew cred or folding chair cred, depending on how high your church is as far as (laughs) where you meet.
0: Excellent. Well, I, I certainly enjoyed those. We won't be treating any of them in detail, and and unless you wish to bring up a particular one while we're, you know, covering another topic. But uh,
1: you say, but we, we look at them as sort of testimonials. They they certainly aren't okay. academic essays. They're they're testimonial evidence. I I see mm-hmm. them as, uh, you know, witnessing in the stand, uh, in our defense that we don't know what we're talking about.
0: <laughs> right, or perhaps a kind of informal case study.
1: Exactly, I think that's what
0: that's how we envisaged it, yes, sure well that made that made a lot of sense and i I enjoyed that feature of the book, so you know listeners um not if, but when you get the book and you read it, um, just appreciate that there's a big thing this book is doing that we're not necessarily going to be talking about in detail that's um, fleshing out, filling out, living out um, the ideas. Well, since since Owen Strawn is not here to explain himself, uh, I'd like to ask a couple of questions uh, just sort of generally about his contributions to the project. Chapter 1 is a, quote, brief biblical theology of the pastorate, but it is a whole Bible account of the pastorate. He spends the bulk of his time in the Old Testament, not the New. So... Why not just tag the usual bases of the pastoral epistles and uh, the end of 1 Peter and move on? Why why take us from Genesis to Revelation, as it were?
1: Uh, That's a great question. Uh, Our basic premise, as you may recall, is that we've lost our way in church. We've let images drawn from secular culture uh, colonize our imaginations as to what leaders are. So whenever I'm confused about something and want to get reoriented, my reflex is to return to Scripture to try to get the big picture and put things in a canonical perspective. So we felt we need to look at all of Scripture in order to get a biblical view of leadership. And the first thing one discovers when one does that is that God has been involved in the project of shaping people into a holy nation for millennia. So we wanted to look at how God pursued that. And one of the most obvious biblical images, you mentioned it in your opening comments, is the shepherd. Mm. But even here, even here we need to return to Scripture because I think our cultural image of shepherd is often too tame. Mm -hmm. David was a shepherd, but we know he had to fight off bears and lions, and I dare say there are equally dangerous predators stalking our flocks today, Uh, you know, ideologies, principalities, and powers. Mm. Anyway, God was a shepherd to Israel, and he instituted various Sioux shepherds, as it were. (laughs) Uh, We have prophets and priests and kings. Kings is a little problematic because even Israel's original desire for a human king uh, apparently was influenced by the surrounding culture, So one wonders uh, about the extent to which kings are a good role model. But on the other hand, human kings are are simply earthly representatives or types of the heavenly king. We know there is only one sovereign. Same with priests in the Old Testament. Uh, Interestingly, the New Testament never refers to pastors as priests. Mm. But in the book, we argue that pastors are like priests, insofar as they minister god's grace and they're like priests insofar as they express the gratitude of god's people for that grace through prayers and sacrifices of praise pastors are like prophets in ministering truth the word of god though they they do it in in sermon perhaps rather than words of prophecy and then pastors are even like kings to the extent that they exemplify wisdom and shepherd the people. Mm. So I'm not, I'm not convinced it's simply a coincidence that King David learned the regal ropes uh, tending sheep.
0: And when I was reading that particular chunk of the book, uh, it suddenly occurred to me that it makes sense uh, in, in light of this connection between pastor and, and king that the main canonical contribution that kings of Israel made is in the wisdom books.
1: Exactly. I think that's really important. Also, uh, we know that when the New Testament uh, unpacks how Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, it does so in terms of showing him to be a greater, more excellent, definitive prophet, priest, and king, Mm. And, uh, and the shepherd, of course, as well. So just as we're mirroring Christ's work as shepherd, so I think we can at least mirror or participate in his work as prophet, priest, and king.
0: Excellent. So that we follow the model of the chief shepherd. Well, the same question I think should be asked of chapter 2, also uh, also Owen Strawn's chapter, which is an account of the pastorate through church history. This one, maybe not all of the circles uh, in evangelical Protestantism, but at least in some might need a certain kind of justification uh, because outside of, I guess, Jeremiah adds it focused on the last 50 years or so, most of the books on pastoring I've read are content with engaging the 1st century and the 21st century and just sort of dropping out the ones in between, except maybe the Reformation. So what do the centuries between add to our understanding of pastor-theologian today?
1: Uh, Well, you've put your finger on a very interesting phenomenon that is focusing either on the present or the first century and skipping over all those centuries of church history. I mean, people don't do that simply with regard to the pastor theologian. There's a temptation to do that on almost any theological topic. Mm. So I think your question, if I can ramp up the volume a little bit, your, your question is really, why does church... History matter for anything.
0: Mm, yeah,
1: <laughs> I'm not a, and uh, history is difficult. So why take the time to discover how other Christians did church? Um, there are whole books written on the topic why church history matters, and they're, they're often very insightful. But the short answer is, I, I think we gotta understand our present better when we better understand the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a little bit like travel, church history. It educates. Uh, In particular, when you travel or when you do church history, you come to see just how culturally conditioned you are. Mm, And I think this is is especially the case or also the case with regard to uh, our understanding of pastors. When you travel to other countries or other times, we see just how culturally conditioned our own view of pastors are. But I think Christians have an additional reason for studying church history. Uh, Not only is it cheaper than travel, but uh, (laughs) if we really believe that the Holy Spirit has been active down through the centuries, guiding the church into all truth, then we have an extra reason for paying attention to what the church has thought and done about pastors. So you mentioned the Reformation. I do think That period in particular gives us very rich insights uh, because there were priests in the medieval era and the Reformation in one sense recovered the pastor as minister of the word. Mm. That has become an important uh, notion for our book. I think the Reformers also rightly understood their vocation as making disciples and forming a holy nation that is a set-apart people Of course, set apart purpose of being a light to the nations. I think of Calvin's Geneva and how serious uh, the pastors in and around Geneva were as to their uh, role of forming a holy nation.
0: Excellent. And even before that, the chapter delves into uh, figures like Augustine, who we might think of today mainly in terms of enormous books that he wrote but he was also a pastor he was also regularly preaching and he was also regularly speaking on behalf of the church within the public square so there
1: yes and that is something we wanted to just remind our readers of namely that in the past uh, theologians were regularly pastors or bishops in fact. You know, what we're seeing now is an aberration, really. The norm has been, down through the centuries, that those writing the theology books were also involved in active ministry.
0: Mm. Yeah. So that a figure like uh, Thomas Aquinas, who is mainly either in a cloistered community or a university community, is actually not the norm historically for the practice of theology.
1: That's right. Uh, Theology did become a university discipline around Aquinas' time, and yes, he's one of the better exemplars. But even after the Middle Ages, you know, back in the Reformation, uh, for a while there, again, the people writing the books were active pastors.
0: Mm. Excellent. Well, Chapter 3 is yours, so with your permission, we'll move on to it. Uh, Here you begin the systematic theology of Pastor theologian, we've, having already looked at a biblical theology and I suppose a historical theology. So here at least I thought that I would be on familiar turf, right? Uh, at one point I was in seminary, I thought I would, or in Bible college, I thought I was going to be in pastoral ministry, so I read lots of books about pastoring. Yes. But I thought this was going to be familiar turf, but your opening move was a surprising one. Uh, Your governing theme is the mood of the pastor-theologian. So why begin theologizing about theologians, which is very cerebral, by getting in the right mood, so to speak?
1: Yeah, fair enough. Uh, Well, I'm glad what I do wasn't obvious. (laughs) (laughs) I have a couple of reasons for choosing mood, and I I agree with you. It, It does seem to be a rather odd choice to begin discussing the work of the pastor theologian but uh, as you know what i actually do with it is i i talk about martin heidegger the philosopher Mm -hmm. who understands mood as a kind of shorthand term for the fundamental way a person is attuned to the world Mm -hmm. that's what he means by mood and that's how i begin using it um because for heidegger uh a philosopher to be authentically human is to be attuned to the world in a rather anxious way and heidegger says our basic mood is a kind of being towards death because for heidegger a philosopher the truth about the human condition is finitude and, and that generates anxiety i mean arguably finitude Uh, The inevitability of death is the biggest problem we face. But uh, for Christian pastors, they know death is only the next to last word. They know that Christianity isn't simply about morality, but a new kind of existence, uh, eternal life. It's not about ethics. It's about eschatology, that is, God's breaking in to our world in christ to make all things new so uh the, the one thing the pastor knows this this goes back to the question of specialization the one thing the pastor knows is that eternal life is a possibility because of the resurrection of jesus christ mm. so if the gospel's true which i believe it is then pastors, theologians and indeed all christians uh pastor theologians should exemplify and embody not being towards death, but the joy of being towards resurrection. And so I, I see the pastor as a placeholder in a community who is attuned to reality in this joyful way because of what the pastor theologian knows about the resurrection of Jesus. And then the task of the pastor is to help church members live into that reality live into that distinctively christian way of being in the world so so theology involves ideas but it's about more than that it's about our fundamental attunement to reality Hmm. and and so let me just add this then Um, all i'm trying to say is that a pastor theologian exists to help people get real and to get in tune with and in touch with reality. Hmm. I think Freud was wrong. Christianity isn't about wish fulfillment. It's about reality. Hmm. And and then that leads me to the other sense in which I use the term mood. When we talk about grammar, we have the imperative mood, the interrogative mood, and the indicative mood. I think theology is largely, not exclusively, but largely a matter of the indicative mood, that is, of saying what is. Mm. And what we especially want to talk about is what is in Jesus Christ, the good news that is in Jesus Christ. That's indicative. So for these two reasons, existential and grammatical, I think the term mood is an interesting choice for, you know, introducing... The idea of the pastor theologian in a systematic theological framework.
0: Well, I thought it worked. <laughs> I was I was surprised at first, but uh, as I kind of settled in, uh, it made it, it made a great deal of sense as a uh, as an approach to putting together um, some pieces that may have become dull with familiarity, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So. One thing uh, in this particular chapter that I noted in particular, I'm an English professor by trade, so I focused on your emphasis on literacy in this chapter uh, as part of a pastor theologian's ministry of understanding. Um, Biblical literacy, that made sense. Cultural literacy made sense as well, given your treatment of pastors as uh, public theologians and organic community intellectuals. But you spent several pages on human literacy, reading novels, uh, which was unexpected, and for me it was delightful. Where does reading fiction fit into a pastor-theologian's ministry of understanding in which they speak reality?
1: Yeah, that's a great question because we've already established that pastors are busy. They don't have enough time to do things. I want them to read the collected works of Karl Barth, and now I want them to read Dostoevsky. <laughs> so <laughs> what... <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, thanks for asking this question. I, I do read fiction myself all the time. I always have a novel going, and it's not simply to escape. In fact, escape is probably the last reason I would give for reading fiction. Mm. I agree with C.S. Lewis, first of all, that in reading... Uh, we become a thousand men and yet remain ourselves. That is, reading fiction is an excellent way of understanding other people, especially those who are not like us. And I would have thought pastors uh, would be very interested in reading fiction because they've got people in their congregation who've had lives and experiences with which they can't relate directly. But if I were a pastor in a particular place, I would want to read literature that somehow opened up those people like a book to me, you know, that would be about the lives of those people. If I were, if I were in mid-20th century Oklahoma, I would, I would want to know John Steinbook's The Grapes of Wrath, you know. So that would be one reason. The second reason to read fiction, though, is that it helps us, I think, understand the human condition in general not people who are unlike us, but problems that we all have in common. Mm. And uh, while I like all of the arts, I think fiction and novels and poetry in particular can get into the human condition in a deeper way because uh, language, which is their medium, is such a supple and expansive instrument. Then thirdly, so I've said We read to uh, learn about people who are not like us. We learn to read about the human condition in general. Thirdly, I think we read to understand the times in which we live better. Uh, It's an excellent way, reading fiction, of of tracking cultural trends, of seeing what's trending. I think that's the trendy way to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one novel I read recently does this. Uh, Jeffrey Eugenides wrote a novel called Middlesex. And when I saw the title, I thought at first it was about Thomas Hardy country. But <laughs> I realized it, it's about the experience of being a transgendered person. Ah. The narrator starts off as a girl and transitions into a boy. And I have never, you know, I, I, not my experience, I've never gone through that. But I have to say that as a result of reading that novel, while it didn't necessarily persuade me of what it ought to be, it certainly raised my consciousness and I think increased my capacity for compassion uh, to see what the issue is and, and just how problem- problematic it can be for individual person.
0: That would be particularly useful for a pastor, uh, not necessarily uh, in the pulpit, though, though probably in the pulpit as well, but in, in the ministry of... Uh, personal counseling and personal uh, uh, the shepherding of of individual members of of the congregation.
1: Yes, uh, and let me just add here that one of the essays that you, you mentioned one of the uh, added bits in our book, we the one voice that is not a pastor who wrote one of the collaborative essays mm-hmm. is Cornelius Plantinga who also is a an academic theologian but for years He has been running a summer seminar at Calvin in Grand Rapids, Michigan, that does precisely this. He has a seminar on reading fiction for pastors. Hmm. The seminar was so successful that he eventually published a book. I think it's called Reading Fiction for Pastors. And not only does he give you rationale for doing that, but the most helpful thing about it is that he adds reading lists at the end of the book. Nice. uh, Reading so that's been very helpful, and I, I do hope pastors are are picking that book up and and reading for not to escape, but rather to get deeper into the lives and the reality of their congregations.
0: Well, I, I naturally think that's a good idea because that's my business. But uh, I'm really I was really excited to see that move, and I didn't know about Plantinga's book. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. Well, in Chapter 4, you get practical. Uh, Not that Chapter 3 wasn't practical, but Chapter 4 is very intentionally practical. And here you discuss all the duties and the practices that we associate with the pastorate, preaching, evangelism, visitation, catechism, that sort of thing. But again, unlike other books that I've read, getting practical isn't the first course, the only course, or even the main course that the book serves up. So up to this point in the book, you've been theological, whether it's biblical theology, historical, systematic. So how has the theology up to this point shaped the ways that the pastoral ministry should be understood and implemented the way you do in chapter four?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you're right. I I do think the book is practical, but perhaps not in the sense that our culture thinks about the term, for Mm -hmm. example, We don't tell pastors how to be more efficient or how to do more with less. It's not about efficiency or convenience or speed or growth. Uh, The focus is not on how to do things efficiently, but on what one is supposed to be doing. Mm. And we argue that what one is supposed to be doing, if one is a pastor, is, is ministering Christ. And that's the way people are shepherded. And it is a form of public service, but as we've said throughout the book, it's a very distinct form of public service. It's not like any, the church is not like any other public institution. Being a pastor is not like any other public service. So we have to know what it is we're serving up. That's my, I guess, my main point. Mm. And on that then, Uh, Everything I talk about in Chapter 4 about what the pastor does is all a variation on the theme of ministering what God is doing in Christ to renew ourselves and the creation. It's all variations on that theme. So we can't do things effectively. We can't even be practical unless we first understand uh, what it is we're trying to minister this phrase I've used, what is in Christ. It's a little phrase, but it's, it's a shorthand term for everything the triune God is doing uh, in Christ through the Holy Spirit to remake us into the image of humanity as we were supposed to be, uh, how God is reconciling communities that have been estranged And everything that uh, God is doing in Christ through the Spirit is uh, what we're trying to minister. But we can only do this, we can only be practical, we argue, if we understand the scriptural account of what God is up to. That's the big question. What is God up to in our world, and Mm -hmm. how can we participate in it? So we have to understand the scriptures, that's why that biblical component is there, and I haven't said this yet, but I think I've implied it, one of the most important aids for understanding Scripture is to know how earlier generations of Christians have understood it. So I would argue that all of the three previous parts of the book, the biblical, historical, and systematic parts, they're all uh, there for the sake of helping ministers be practical, which, by which I mean being excellent in the peculiar pastoral practice mm. that one is called to do not simply being efficient and all that but but pursuing the pastoral practice with excellence mm.
0: one of the things that i tell my uh, students when they're writing papers is that they will never have a notion of how to write a good essay or how to write a good uh, analysis or definition, if they haven't already got some kind of notion of what achieving the good looks like, so that the theory actually becomes practical. You, you, you can't judge whether or not your practice has been excellent unless you have a notion of what the end of it is. So yep. this is practical yep, in that sense. Well, if I might, uh, I'd like to chase a rabbit for a moment. Uh, in this chapter, one of the ways that you theorize pastoral ministry is through the analogy of construction, that pastors are building God's house. Right. Um, in this discussion, you turn to Ezra uh, and Nehemiah, and to my delight, because I study old English literature, you turn to the Venerable Beads commentary on these books. Um, would you mind commenting a bit on this section of... The, uh, of the chapter, and uh, I guess your, your engagement with Bede uh, as a writer and a, a theologian in this, ch- in this chapter?
1: Sure. And let me say that I'm glad that now I know there's at least one person who's happy there's something Anglo Saxon. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I'm, I am not an expert in things Anglo Saxon, unlike yourself, I'm afraid. And uh, I have to admit, I came to be a little bit by default. I I was working primarily on the biblical text, Ezra Nehemiah, thinking that there may be something in the parallel between rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple Mm. and our present situation in the Church. That was my hunch. But uh, most of the modern commentators I consulted on Ezra Nehemiah, they, they did not help me. (laughs) <laughs> in pursuing that line of inquiry so i turned to the uh, patristic commentary on the bible uh, this massive project overseen by thomas odin looking at what early church fathers have said mm-hmm. which i'm very pleased exists and uh, i have the commentary volume on ezra and nehemiah but i was astonished to discover that unlike all the other books in this patristic commentary series that draw from a variety of authors, highlights, as it were, on various biblical uh, bits. In this volume on Ezra and Nehemiah, almost every entry is by Bede. Huh. Uh, so, I, yeah, I was astonished about that. So then I thought, well, this is this is this is crazy, you know? Why has no one else written about Ezra and Nehemiah, and why is it all Bede? So, I went then and tracked down his commentary and. I think this is right. I think he is the first person to write a full-length commentary on these books. Mm. and That impressed me. The other thing that impressed me was that he uh, had shared my intuition that Ezra and Nehemiah could profitably be read with a focus on the Church. Mm. Not, of course, the 21st century Church, but the contemporary Church. In other words, Repairing the walls of Jerusalem uh, for Bede is, is a little like code for repairing the walls of the temple. And, uh, well, we Christians are a living temple. We are being built stone by stone. We're living stones, Paul says. So this gets into the you know, whole question of whether we can read the Old Testament Christianly, but this is what impressed me about Bede. I think we can, and and he did.
0: Excellent. Uh, brief note on that um, and I'm I'm not an expert on Bede but one of the things that I've encountered is that much of what Bede did was to do, transmit the patristic commentary on the, the books of scripture uh, for uh, his own posterity but when he saw a gap uh, as he found with Ezra Nehemiah when he saw a gap, he attempted to fill it as best he could in the manner of the best that he found in the patristic witness. So uh, my guess is that what you're finding in his commentary on Ezra-Nehemiah is the Venerable B doing his best to write the Ezra-Nehemiah commentary that Augustine or Jerome didn't. Huh. <laughs>
1: That makes sense, it makes sense, because I did wonder even about his inclusion in that series, you know, mm-hmm. are the dates right for him to be called patristic, but but what you're saying makes sense of his inclusion. Mm.
0: He's very much in their manner, even if he is not of their time. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, much has been left uh, in the wayside of this conversation, which is why our listeners should go get the book for themselves. But, so far, I've steered the conversation, but on our uh, on Christian humanist profiles, we like to thank our guests by letting them have the last word. So, what would you like to our listeners to consider as we end this interview, whether it's something in the book that we've not we've not yet covered, or a thread of conversation you'd like to follow further, or anything else you'd like?
1: Okay, oh, uh, well, thanks. As you know, I teach at a seminary, and so I teach prospective pastors for the most part, but many of them, many of my students are also thinking about becoming academics and going into, uh, you know, for PhDs and so on. I, I guess the thing I would want to say is first that pastor theologians don't have to be the smartest people in the room to succeed in their vocation. Mm. I'm impressed by the apostles in the book of Acts. Um, when they're on their own, they get called before the high priests and the elders and the scribes to give an account of what they're saying. This is in Acts 4, mm. and all those, all those folks, those high priests and elders and scribes, they're all they they would have all been highly trained in rabbinic schools. They would have been the academics of their day, and we're told in Acts that they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they were surprised by their boldness because, Acts also tells us, they perceived that they were uneducated common men. Mm. That's significant. Peter and John were able to astonish the academics, but they were uneducated common men. So on the one hand, because of the nature of the specialization, pastor theologians don't have to be the smartest people in the room to succeed in being even organic intellectuals. But then the second thing I want to say, which may seem uh, to contradict it, but I don't don't think it does. The second thing is that the smartest people in the room would do well to consider becoming pastors rather than professors, if they want to do something really challenging. There's nothing harder than doing theology with real people.
0: Mm. That was one of the things that I appreciated about your introduction. Uh, to this book uh, was the valuing of pastors that was in it. Um, so, if there are if there are pastors listening, and I believe we have we have listeners who are, or people who are considering it, yeah, that's a good last word.
1: Good. Thanks again.
0: Well, I really appreciate you coming on our show, Dr. Van Hooser. Uh, I've enjoyed this conversation a great deal, and I yeah, and I hope our listeners will as well very good well listeners that's all we have time for at the moment if you'd like to make comments on this show or ask specific questions or anything of that sort you can post those in the comments to the show notes for the episode when they post on our blog christianhumanist.org you can also send them to us via email at thechristianhumanist@gmail.com at or post them on our wall at facebook The book that we've been discussing today uh, by Kevin Van Hooser and Owen Strawn is The Pastor as Public Theologian, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, published by Baker Academic, and we'll post a link to Baker's page for this book in the show notes when those post. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and our audio editor is Britt Stack. Be listening for the next Christian Humanist Profiles.